Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is me. Uh, It's 2017, but the show that you're about to hear was recorded a while back. And when I say a while back, I I think it's important to say this show was recorded by us before we knew that there was going to be a movie called Hidden Figures, which dealt very specifically with mathematicians employed in the early stages of the space program. We had decided we were going to do a show about mathematicians employed in the early stages of the space program, not knowing there was a movie yet to come. Uh, We found out about that later. Uh, But we also felt as though there were some other stories to tell. You're going to hear on this show a story that is not told in that movie about a whole other group of women whose Well, their story to this day is just incredibly undocumented. So I wanted you to know that. This is one of our favorite shows, though. We love the story of these women. We love the people you're going to hear from. I hope that you love it, too. Here we go. Before there was Sally Ride, there was so much more, and so much more than we knew before we got involved in this show. This show has really been an eye-opener, I think, for all of us who work here on The Colin McEnroe Show. Um, We knew, I think, that there were stories about women who worked in the space program, but I don't think we knew what those stories were, how pervasive they were, how gigantic they were. We're going to tell you two sets of stories today. The first one is about the so-called Rocket Girls. These were essentially women who were scientists and mathematicians who helped the so-called JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and help it. They worked there. Uh, They worked there. They did a lot of the really seminal work, uh, particularly at the level of computation and plotting and stuff like that, to get uh, the, uh, well, you know how people say, it isn't rocket rocket science. This was rocket science. They did rocket science. Uh, they did some of the really early rocket science for this country, uh, and their uh, their accomplishments and their contributions are largely unsung. But for a book that we're going to tell you about in just a second. But but then after that, we're also we're going to tell you a different story, one that kind of came to us a little later in the process of assembling this show, and that's the story of women who were recruited as astronauts at the time of the Mercury program tested as though they were going to be astronauts at the time of the Mercury program and trained as though they were going to be astronauts at the time of the Mercury program, but they weren't astronauts. In fact, probably they were never going to be astronauts, even though uh, in that process they often outperformed the famous male astronauts of the Mercury program. And you know, th- those astronauts would be, what, Ali she- Al- Alan Shepard, Wally Sherrod, Deke Slayton, Gus Grissom, John Glenn, Scott Carpenter. So you can tell I grew up in the <laughs> early 1960s because I could just 
rattled these things off. I don't need notes. I, I don't know who I'm leaving out right now. But um, but anyway, all these people, oh, Scott Cooper, uh, Gordon Cooper, um, all these people who were really famous, uh, they were in Life magazine. They became the basis for the book and the movie The Right Stuff. Everybody knows those names. There were women being recruited at the same time who were doing everything that the men were able to do. Uh, but they didn't get sent into space. We'll tell you that story both uh, through a, a journalist and author who's written about it, but also we we have one of those women uh, available to go on the show today. So you'll meet Wally Funk uh, a little bit later. Uh, but we're going to begin with the so-called Rocket Girls. Uh, these were the people that I was talking about at first. Uh, they were women who were rec- recruited mostly to work uh, at the JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, and here to tell us about it is Nathalia Holt, microbiologist, science writer and author of Rise of the Rocket Girls, the women who propelled us from missiles to the moon to Mars. Uh, welcome to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And, and so let's just begin. Uh, who, who were these women? Where did they come from? How, how did they wind up working at this really kind of state-of-the-art or maybe even state-ahead-of-the-art rocket science facility? Hmm. They came from all over the country, all different places. They were recruited to work at this lab called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and they ended up being an all-female team because of a woman named Macy Roberts. And she was just very interesting because she became supervisor of this computing section in 1942, and she was hiring these women as computers, which of course is a title that is very confusing today. Um, But back then, a computer meant simply a person who computes. And so laboratories would hire large numbers of computers uh, to join their laboratories and to perform all of the calculations needed for their experiments. I'm going to set up a few other things, but uh, you're going to hear uh, a lot about Barbara Paulson. But just here's a clip of her describing her role. I had had quite a bit of math in high school. Both of my sisters prepared to be secretaries, and I just took a different path completely. Explorer 1 was launched January 31st in 1958, and that would have been after Sputnik had, had been launched. The missile is in flight, but the success of its mission is still in doubt. It will take another hour and a half to know whether the satellite is in orbit, the most tense and harrowing wait of all. I was asked to graph the results coming back from the the Explorer 1 satellite. And I worked most of the night, through the night, at JPL with my mechanical pencil and graph paper and light table that I was working on. And those were, that was all the equipment that I had. You know, as I look back on so many things, I get more excited now than I did then. But it was exciting. I mean, it was great news that it was once in orbit around the Earth. Uh, that's Barbara Paulson, one of these so-called rocket girls. So, I mean, just to set the, set the stage a little bit more, too, while working out this phone thing, this was kind of before obviously, the age of the kinds of computers that we know about. And, and frequently, uh, as you hear Barbara Paulson say in that, frequently, a lot of what they were doing, they were doing, and this is, I, I'm saying, this is the rocket science that, that created the space program, but they were doing a lot of it with paper and pencil uh, and their brains. Uh, they were tackling these complicated mathematical equations. Um, and, and in fact, for some reason or other, and, and I, I'm, I'm assuming maybe Nathalia will be able to shed some light on it. This was kind of seen as something that women could do, maybe in an era where women weren't always given 
some of these kinds of jobs, this kind of computation. And they, they continued to do this kind of work well after the age of computers or the early age of computers, uh, what was called Fortran, uh, the primary computer language for scientific applications at that time. Uh, a- after that was developed, they were still uh, doing the kinds of things that we're talking about. So um, one of the questions that I have is, okay, so we have, you know, at that moment in this er- the early stages uh, of, of rocket science in, in the United States, you know, still kind of a male-dominated hierarchical world. So how did it come to be that this group of women with their unusual math and science skills were slotted into this particular role? Why was that a role that they would do? Yeah, so if you were a woman in the 1930s and 1940s and were interested in science, there were not very many opportunities for you. Most engineering schools were only open to men. And so you would have women who had bachelor degrees in math, who had education in these fields, but the only job that they could really get would be that of a computer. And there are exceptions to this, of course. Um, But this was kind of an entryway, a way to work on these projects, even if you were a woman. Um, And that's not saying that a bachelor's degree was necessary because there were many women that worked as computers that didn't have this degree and were simply very skilled at math. Um, But many women did have education as well. Um, A great example of this is Janez Lawson, who's featured on the cover of my book. And she was the first African-American hired in a technical position at the lab in California, JPL. And she had a degree uh, from the University of California, Los Angeles in chemical engineering. So today she would just be hired as an engineer, but back then she was hired as a computer. And of course, these women were paid quite a bit less than the men that they worked with. But I did find that at JPL, there was a very interesting relationship that developed between the men and the women. They they got to they got along together very well, and they were really able to do some some incredible work because of that relationship. And just to, so we're clear, because people listening may be a little bit confused, so we should reiterate this. They were called computers. I mean, people, in other words, the boss would say, where are the computers? Their break ended 10 minutes ago. He was referring to human beings, not machines. Yes, exactly. Yes, a computer meant a person that computes. And there were men that were hired as computers, too. Both men and women were hired as computers. Um, quite a few were hired after the Great Depression as part of this Works Progress Administration uh, project that was about creating these logarithmic table books. Um, and there were men that worked as computers at early NASA centers all over the country. So this group at JPL was very unique because they were all women. And, and I mean, this isn't, I don't know, what, what I would think of as computing, uh, a human being doing computing is much less sophisticated than what they were doing. They, they really were doing incredibly complex calculations and using data that was already complex uh, to, to, to build up logarithms and models and stuff like that to, to plot telemetry. One of the things that I found fascinating, too, was even... I mean, one of the great things about them, uh, I think, is that, as we know, technology doesn't always work. We had a little technology problem a few minutes ago. And so in the early ages of uh, stages uh, of the computer-assisted version of this rocket science, they were still around. And when things didn't work, it was great to have them, right? Because they could still do it on a blackboard or with a pencil and paper. Yes. Well, it took a little bit longer for computers to gain a foothold than I thought, um, but Certainly once IBMs came in during the 60s when they really gained prominence at NASA, 
we see that the people that worked as computers mostly lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. But that didn't actually happen to this one group at JPL. They ended up sticking around and becoming the first computer programmers. And, of course, the computers of this era did act up quite a bit. They overheated. They had all kinds of issues that that are throughout my book that happened during these missions. Um, And so quite frequently the women would have to just pull out paper and pencil and so uh, to further confuse things, okay, so we already have sort of machine computers and human computers. Uh, we also have a movie out called Suicide Squad right now that has nothing to do uh, with the original Suicide Squad. Maybe you better tell us about them, too. <laughs> yeah, so the history of JPL is is it's really, it's very unexpected. It starts with this group that was known as the Suicide Squad, and they were... Some of them were students at Caltech. Some of them weren't. And they ran their experiments at Caltech and just did all of these crazy things. They sent up a fountain of nitrogen dioxide that ended up ruining landscaping. They rusted out a very expensive wind tunnel. And then they finally exploded off the side of a building. And at this point, the administrators at Caltech told this group, okay, you have to leave, get off campus. And so they found this isolated canyon uh, in Pasadena, California, and started setting off their rockets there. And they ended up, just because they were so passionate about rocketry, um, they ended up getting the U.S. government's first official grant for rocket science. And at this time, rocket science was not considered a very legitimate field. It wasn't something that a serious scientist wanted to be associated with. And so most people thought that the experiments that they were doing were just not going to work, that it would be impossible really to fly rockets into space. And so from this very crazy start, you have this laboratory that then has formed at that spot in the canyon and has just given us so many incredible missions at NASA. Although its its initial mission was probably a little bit more military than the kind of you know, pure domestic exploratory science that we think of for NASA, right? Yeah, so they started out working on early projects, weaponry for World War II. So the first project that they got a contract for was called JADO, or Jet Assisted Takeoff, where they strap rockets onto the side of fixed-wing aircraft. And their hope was to be able to convert this technology into being able to lift bombers into the air. Um, and what's important to remember is that part of one of the members of this group was actually a woman. Her name was Barbie Canwright. She worked as a computer from the lab's earliest days, and she was there on the airfield calculating the experiments and figuring out all of the data for this kind of crazy project that had a number of mishaps um, but did ultimately find success. And then from there, they went on and worked on many of the early missiles. They worked on the Corporal Missile and the Sergeant Missile. Um, and even as they're working on these projects, though, their real goal is space exploration. That's what they're passionate about. These projects are mostly a way of paying the bills. And so we see that the rocket technology that they developed in the 40s and 50s is really comes to the forefront in the space age. These are the rockets that end up bringing our first satellite uh, into the air and just give us so many incredible moments. 
Um, if you had walked around the corridors of this uh, place in the early stages and maybe even some of the, the later stage and stages, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory I'm talking about, you might not have assumed that this really was the absolute cutting edge uh, for rocket science, for the ultimate space program. Um, the people that you would see, uh, according to your account anyway, uh, would sometimes be maybe a, a little bit on the social misfit side. I mean, there was at least one incident, in, incident maybe you can tell us about it that involved an engineer going after another engineer with an axe? Yes. It was a very casual environment, very <laughs> different than the other early centers that would become part of NASA. The atmosphere there, because it started with this wacky group known as the Suicide Squad, it, it always just had a different feel. And they also have an association with Caltech, which other NASA centers don't have that same academic association. So that also gives it a more casual vibe there. Um, but this one incident you're talking about is, is really when the lab is starting to gain a better reputation, starting to become more serious. And you have one of its engineers whose name is Walt Powell, and he is playing with an, a remote control airplane uh, in, the, in the canyon just on one of his off moments when Frank Molina, who is then acting director of the lab, walks by, and Frank Molina was one of the founders of the Suicide Squad, um, and so he certainly is known for some very crazy moments and many accidents. But when he walks by Walt, he says, hey, stop playing with that, get back to work, we don't play with toys here. And Walt is just livid by this. He just feels like, what? All we do is play with toys. This is all about experimentation and having fun, and he just is so angry at Frank that he comes after him with a hatchet. And when Frank refuses to open his door, he actually starts axing the door until the wood starts splintering. And it is a crazy scene. You can imagine what's happening at this point as other engineers are getting involved and telling Walt to settle down. And really, it seems as if it's going to be a very violent moment when one of the engineers ends up cutting off Walt's necktie and that action just makes laughter. Mm -hmm. Everyone is giggling and chuckling, and the anger is diffused. Although Walt, of course, is very embarrassed. For many years, he's teased about this incident. And the women of JPL also relished in it, and they loved acting out that scene with the scissors and the necktie. And it's a very playful group. Um, and I think that spirit is still there today. It's still a very experimental, fun group at JPL. It's different than other NASA centers. I want to talk very specifically about these women. You mentioned Maisie Roberts, a supervisor of the so-called Rocket Girls, this computational unit. Uh, Helen Ling was another one. And, and at a certain point, they believed really in having women uh, in these units and, and not mixing it up too much. Talk about what their philosophy was. So this really started with Macy Roberts, because when she was made supervisor, she just felt uncomfortable hiring men. Men would apply, but if she saw a man's name on an application, she would set it aside. She just didn't feel that a man would listen to her as a woman boss. Um, and so because of that, she hired a very large number of women um, and, and really created a very close-knit group. They relied on one another. You can imagine that during this time, they are starting to have families. They are getting to this age where they're um, 
getting married. And so they, it, this is not a, a typical role for women of this era. At the time in 1960, only 25% of mothers worked outside the home. And so they, they did have to rely on one another to make this work. And I, I did read um, elsewhere, I think, uh, that that one of the things that, that Macy Roberts and Helen Ling did was, uh, and there wasn't any such thing as family leave policy or maternity leave at that, at that point, but Helen Ling would just hire you back, right? You'd go away. I think this happened with Barbara Paulson, whom we heard from earlier. You'd go away, and then you'd get a phone call. Are you ready to come back? And they'd just hire you again. Yes, this is really the advantage of having a woman as a supervisor of this group for so long. And there, there was some pushback about having a woman leading this, this group that was, that was very influential, that had a lot of responsibility in the lab. Um, but because you have Macy Roberts as supervisor and then later Helen Lang, they were able to create this culture of working motherhood that really didn't exist before them. And it was that simple. It was done with a phone call. Helen would call you after you had a child and, and ask you to come back. Um, so as you began tracking these women down, and, and let's stipulate that before uh, this book, there really wasn't much of a public record of these women, the, so the whole notion that they existed and played this really kind of pivotal uh, and uh, sort of sine qua non role. I mean, you don't do this program. You can't do it without the thing that they did. But, but for all of that, there wasn't much of a record of them. What, first of all, what happened when you started calling them up or emailing them or reaching them on Facebook? Were they surprised to find out that you were interested? They were not surprised. They were very excited to hear from me right from the beginning. And immediately from our first conversation, they just dove into the history. And I was amazed how vivid their memories were. It wasn't easy to find them. I, when I first learned about the story, I had contacted the archives at the lab. And they were wonderful there. They were able to give me so many documents, and they have all of these great photographs of the women. But unfortunately, in the captions, they had very few of their names, and they had no contact information. They didn't know where these women even were. And this was really shocking to me because these are employees that worked at the lab for 50, 60 years. It's not as if they were just there for a couple of years in the 40s. Um, so I started with just these few names that I had, and I just called as many as I could. I like to joke that if your name is Barbara, Helen, or Virginia, it's very possible that I've called you because <laughs> I've just called so many. Um, but yes, when I first found Barbara Paulson in Iowa, it was just a wonderful conversation. She's just such a lovely person, and her memories of her 45-year career at NASA are so worth hearing. Um, she was just there. She was in the control room for so many of these pivotal moments in our space history. And and yet, I mean, in 2008, NASA held a, a big celebration of Explorer 1. This is one of the satellites that, that these women worked on. I mean, they were largely responsible for the success of this, and they weren't invited. I mean, how, could that, how can that even be? Yes. It's really not due to any malintent on NASA's part. It's just that their histories were that forgotten that we didn't even know that Barbara Paulson was the person who declared Explorer 1 was a success. It was her calculations that let us know that the first American satellite had made it into orbit. Um, and unfortunately, I think that that happens to quite a few scientists and even more women scientists. And so it's important that we find them in our history and that we recognize the contributions they've made. 
So, uh, you know, you said uh, some of these women, it wasn't like they worked for NASA or for JPL for uh, a few years and then moved on. They worked 40, 50 years. Susan Finley's the most amazing one, right? She was hired at, uh, in 1958. Uh, and is she still there now? She is still there today. She is NASA's longest serving female employee. And there is hardly a mission that NASA has taken part in that, that she hasn't worked on. On the other hand, I don't, I didn't get the feeling that, uh, I don't know, that there's a Susan Finley statue somewhere. Quite the opposite. I mean, wasn't her position downgraded or something recently? It was. In 2008, NASA had a policy where they decided that if you don't have a bachelor's degree, you can't have the title of engineer. And it's important to mention here that while the women were computers, uh, that title ended in 1969, and they were finally made engineers and given a big pay raise at that same time. And this was a really momentous occasion for the women. You can imagine how it must have felt to have done all of this work for decades for some of them and to finally get this recognition and this very coveted title. So when this happened to Sue Finley and they took her engineer title away, it was a very, very distressing time for her. You might think, oh, it's just a title. What does it matter? But it, it does matter to her. She she earned that title, and she's very proud of it. Um, but despite that, she loves working in the lab. She is currently working on Juno, which is our mission to Jupiter, and she she has no plans of retiring. She Her story all alone, if it were the only story there, is a pretty amazing one. And she was the kind of person who, in, in an emergency when a computer wasn't working, like a, a machine, a mechanical computer wasn't working, uh, could once again jump in and do the work of the computer. Uh, it, it's a, a mind-boggling story all by itself. You know, before we, we lose you, before we move on to another story of amazing women in the space program, Nathalia Holt, I think it's worth mentioning the serendipity by which you stumbled over all of this, this all began, I guess, because you were looking for or testing out potential baby names for your own baby. Yes, it's a funny coincidence. It started in 2010. My husband and I were expecting our first child. We're very excited, but we're having a really difficult time coming up with baby names. And it was actually my husband that suggested the name Eleanor Francis. And when I first heard it, I was a little unsure because it is an old-fashioned name. And so I did what parents do these days, and I Googled it. And the first person to come up was a woman named Eleanor Francis Pauline. And there's this lovely picture of her that comes up in a Google search that's in black and white where she's accepting an award at NASA. And when I saw this picture, I was really stunned. It's just incredible to me. I, even though I have a Ph.D. in microbiology, I consider myself very well-versed in the contributions of women scientists. I had never heard of women at NASA at this period. And it was it was just it was so striking to me that I knew I had to learn as much as I could. And it's it's really thanks to my daughter's name um, that I, I found out about this incredible group of women. Um, Eleanor is five now and she's about to start kindergarten. Um, and I'm, I'm just so thankful that she's been named for this incredible woman, this incredible scientist. Unfortunately, I never got to meet Eleanor Francis Lane because she passed away the year before my daughter was born. But oh, I just hope one day my Eleanor will, will find a lot of inspiration in her. 
Nathalia Holt, this is a great story. It should be a movie. I feel like it should be a, like it's like the rocket version of A League of Our Own or something. Um, <laughs> so uh, so good luck with that. Somebody will, uh, if, if they haven't optioned it already, uh, maybe they will. Uh, this is uh, the book that we're talking about, The Rise of the Rocket Girls, The Women Who Propelled Us from Missiles to the Moon to Mars. Nathalia Holt is its author. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to move on now to a different story, one no less thrilling and chilling, a different group of women playing a different kind of pivotal role in the early stages of the American space program. This is me in 2017. This show that you're hearing, however, was recorded a while back. Um, I think it also fits into a pattern. One of the things that we've discovered over the last couple of years is our own fondness, I guess, for stories of women whose stories are essentially undocumented. Um, We discovered, for example, um, the story of something called the Women's Land Army, who essentially helped feed the country during two world wars when agricultural labor in the form of men was suddenly in short supply. The story of those women, completely undocumented. We did this show well before the movie Hidden Figures came out. We didn't know there was going to be a movie called Hidden Figures. So we really felt that this was yet another one of these stories that had just gone untold. Something about women doing amazing things and nobody really circulating that story so that everybody knows about it. And towards the end of the show, you're going to hear a story that isn't in Hidden Figures and that people still don't know about. They're amazed whenever I mention it to them. So we're going to go back uh, to this show. Thanks for listening. So when she was 13 years old or thereabouts, uh, Hillary Rodham, uh, according to her, wrote a letter to NASA saying that she would like to become an astronaut and got a letter back saying, we don't take women. Well, that's But that was true or sort of true. Uh, But there's a part of it that Hillary Rodham didn't know that very few people knew. Now, you're going to hear about it right now from Martha Ackman, uh, journalist, author and editor who writes about women who have changed America. And she's the author of The Mercury 13, the untold story of 13 American women and the dream of spaceflight. In a little while, you're going to meet one of those 13 women uh, that will come in our final segment today. But uh, right now we're going to talk to uh, Martha. Uh, Welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much, Colin. So this begins with the Mercury program. Uh, Earlier in the show, I attempted to rattle off the name of the seven very famous Mercury astronauts. But while they were being recruited and trained, there was a different kind of inquiry going on that apparently had something to do with the physical requirements of this particular space program. The capsule was tiny. The rockets were maybe by modern standards a little bit primitive. Um, So you had to have somebody a little bit on the small side. The Mercury 7 male astronauts were actually 
actually um, below average height. Uh, they had to be under 180 pounds. And I guess that got somebody, Martha, interested in the idea of, of women as astronauts, or at least looking at how women would be as astronauts. That's right. His name was Randy Lovelace, and he was the head of life sciences for NASA. In fact, he designed all the medical tests that uh, Glenn and Grissom and Shira and all the rest took, and then ran the men through those tests at his uh, lab in uh, New Mexico. And when they were finished, he had this at once simple and very profound question. He asked himself, he asked himself, I wonder what would happen if we took these same tests and ran a group of women pilots through them. What might happen? I mean, I think his, his curiosity was motivated both by um, just kind of a natural scientific um, fascination, um, just change the model and see how, how women might, might go with the test. But he was also a man who was not um, blinded by sexism. Um, he, he thought that women could do just about anything that, that men could do, and that, that was part of his motivation as well. So uh, he, I mean, I, I guess the next question would be, I mean, we know where the original Mercury astronauts came from. They were military pilots. Uh, there wouldn't have been female military pilots at that moment. So where did he find his women? On a beach in Florida. Um, <laughs> he, he was attending a conference, uh, an aviation conference in Florida. And uh, walking the beach one day, he ran into someone he had heard about, a woman by the name of Jerry Cobb. And Jerry Cobb was the most celebrated woman, American woman pilot at the time. She was the 1959 um, uh, woman in aviation. She had um, she had achieved a number of aviation records for altitude and distance. She was um, uh, uh, an aviation racer as well. So he knew about her, and so he proposed this uh, wild idea: How would you like to? Uh, take the same test that the NASA uh, Mercury astronauts took. Of course, she knew who Randy Lovelace was, and she said to herself when that moment came on the beach in Florida, she said, here it is, let's go. So this is the 1950s, early 1960s, um, and, and I mean, if people have seen Mad Men, they know all of the assumptions uh, that were made about women at that time, that they weren't as capable of doing certain things that men could do, they couldn't deal with stress, isolation, multitasking, there are all kinds of prejudices. Uh, let's actually listen to Jerry Cobb uh, talk a little bit about the, the presuppositions and the prejudices that she encountered. You think you can compete uh, with men? I'm not competing with the men at all. I think that both men and women will be flying in space. Well, a pretty girl like you must have thought uh, something about marriage. What about that? No, I'm more interested in this right now than anything else in the world. Uh, you mean that you're uh, a little bit more afraid of uh, men than you are of space? No, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. All right, that guy's a jerk, but um, but maybe very emblematic of his time, too. So, um, Martha, it's worth saying, and I'm sure Wally will want to double down on this when she gets on, um, the women, you know, overall did just fine on these tests. They did very well. There were three phases of tests. The first phase was um, to see if you had the, the physical capacity for it. And, um, oh, there was one very famous test where they wanted to uh, simulate the kind of disorientation that an astronaut might face um, in outer space. So they put water just, just one degree above freezing into 
the candidates' ears, and they would go into this wild kind of spin where they couldn't, they were trying to grab hold of the chair in which they were in, and um, and the women just steeled themselves. And, of course, what was worse was when it happened the second time in, in the other ear. But, yes, in fact, they, they did extremely well. About 25 were tested. Um, some had to drop out for various reasons, and uh, 13 made the grade. Uh, Jerry, of course, was first, and then after she did so well, they thought, well, is she a fluke? Might there be some other women out there who have the interest, who have the the nerve, who have the capacity to do it, and they found them. Um, Did these women think they were going to become Mercury astronauts, or was that kind of open-ended? Well, they knew who Randy Lovelace was. He, they knew that he was the head of Life Sciences. So when they received the letter from him, and I've seen those letters, he said, uh, would you be willing to take part in this experiment? And when a pilot is uh, very high achieving, they want to do three things. They want to go higher, faster, and farther. And so this was an opportunity that just never fell in women's laps before. So they were all set to go. Did they think that it was going to directly lead to becoming astronauts. I think they hoped that. But they, they knew it was the first step, and a first step that they were quite eager to take. So when did they find out that they weren't going to be astronauts? Well, I mentioned before there were three phases of tests. First, the medical. Second was psychological. And the third was space flight simulation tests down at Pensacola um, Air Force Base in, uh, in, in Florida. And so... Um, I'm sorry, Navy, the Navy base there. And so they had to get, uh, the Navy decided that it needed NASA's permission before allowing the women to use the Navy's equipment. I always like to point out that, well, the women were paying taxes and they were supporting (laughs) that equipment just as much as as men were. Um, But at that point, NASA said no. They said, you know, we see this as Randy's independent experiment, and we don't want to run the risk of having a woman... Uh, maybe be injured, maybe be lost in space. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the money. And they put a, a stop to it. Randy thought, well, all right. He wasn't surprised. And he thought, I'll just wait this out a few months. Um, and unfortunately, Randy Lovelace was then killed in an airplane crash shortly afterwards. But the women... Um, especially Cobb, especially Jerry. She did not want to let it go. And so she saw the question shifting from uh, a scientific question, uh, can women go into space? Do they have the ability to a political one? Should they be allowed to go into space? So that's when she went to Washington, D.C. And there were, I know, well, I just want to backtrack before we get to that and and just say that um, this all happens against the backdrop of the Cold War. Everything we do is constantly being compared to what the Soviet Union does. Somehow or other, the Soviet Union winds up with women cosmonauts well before we do the same thing. Exactly. Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space in 1963. And the, the Soviets at that time did not have the same kind of prejudices. She did not have anywhere near the kind of qualifications that the Mercury 13 women did. She had some experience as a, as a parachutist, um, but uh, she was not a pilot. So it was a very different situation uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, what 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 was the consequence? I mean, obviously, uh, to to 
to go through the testing to become an astronaut and to have that idea etched on your mind and, and then not have it happen. I mean, there's some obvious consequences there. But I'm assuming these women kind of bet other parts of their lives on this, too. Uh, what, what I mean, I'm sure you followed the story of all 13 of them. What happened to them as a result of all this? Well, many different kinds of things. Um, I'm thinking of Jerry Truehill, a real tough talk in Texan that um, I simply adored when I interviewed her for the book. And she lost her marriage because of it. Um, be, uh, her husband said, no wife of mine is going to go off on some harebrained scheme to take astronaut tests. He was a pilot. He probably wanted to be one of the ones being tested as well, but uh, Jerry lost her marriage over that. Another thing about the testing was uh, the women were sworn to secrecy. Uh, they were told, um, we want to bring you down to uh, Albuquerque for um, a period of time. We can't tell you how long. We can't tell you exactly what you're going to do. And uh, we don't want you to tell anybody about it. Is that okay with you? Well, for some of the women, uh, many of them who had very hard-won jobs, much like what Nathalia was just talking about, in that they had, um, they were flight instructors or they were working as, as engineers. And you can imagine, they had to tell bosses, I'm going to be away for a while. I can't tell you where I'm going. Can't tell you when I'm, when I'm going to be back. Is that okay with you? Mm -hmm. So some, some lost their jobs because they were faced with, do I go on this adventure of my life? Or do I stay with my job? And some quit. So I was uh, an elementary school student during the Mercury uh, space program. I mean, when the Alan Shepard's uh, launch came, they wheeled a TV set into the classroom. We stopped what we were doing. We watched this. And so, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm a space-age baby uh, here. I, I found out about this story, Martha, yesterday. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, when, when could it have been found, about, uh, found out about it? In other words, did it stay secret for a really long time? I mean, how come people don't know this story? between the cracks, and it didn't stay secret for a long time. In fact, once Valentina Tereshkova went up, uh, Life magazine uh, in the early 60s did a huge spread on them with a headline that I'll never forget. It said, you know, while well, the Soviets send up Tereshkova, 13 sit on the bench. Mm. And uh, so they revealed their identities. At, at, that, at that point, it was Claire Booth Luce who actually did the, the story on them. So it, it appeared there were lots of stories interviewing Jerry Cobb, for example. There then was a, a very um, uh, well-documented uh, congressional hearing, the clip you played of, of Jerry talking about, no, I'm not too interested in boyfriends at the moment. That came during the congressional hearing, but then it dropped out of sight. Right. I mean, the, the Jerry Cobb stuff is amazing that, you know, when she was doing the flying that she did do, uh, she was supposed to wear a dress and high heels. <laughs> they started that way. Then they took the high heels off when they were flying and threw them to the back of the cockpit. Yeah, one, one would hope. So one person who did know about all this, uh, and we're going to take a break in just a second and bring uh, Wally into the conversation, but was one person who did know about this, uh, and, and, and many people who knew about this, were the women who did get to become astronauts. So I guess the um, Eileen Collins flight was a time when the Merck 13 were able to get back together? Yes, and in fact, um, I, Eileen Collins found out about the Mercury 13 story um, in the early 90s. She had never heard of it before, and once, once she did, she learned as much as she possibly could. So when Collins went up to become the first woman shuttle commander in the late 1990s, she invited the Mercury 13 women, the surviving ones, the ones who are still alive, to stand in witness to her 
um, to her accomplishment. Now, when Sally Ride went up in the 70s, the Mercury 13 women were delighted, but it wasn't exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to, they were pilots, so they wanted to sit as pilots, say, left seat. They wanted to, um, they wanted to fly the shuttle. They wanted to fly the space capsule. So she invited them to stand and witness, and I was lucky enough to be invited by, actually, by Wally, who's going to be coming on in a few minutes to, uh, to witness them witnessing. All right. Uh, in fact, we're going to take a break now. We're going to thank Martha Ackman. Uh, we're going to meet Wally after this. So stay with us. A woman on a mission, quite familiar with quasars. Her heart's still in the kitchen, but her soul is in the stars. So, of uh, some quick thank yous here. Uh, Bitsy Kaplan's our technical producer today. On the board, Josh Nalea conceived of and produced this show. Uh, we got Jeff Tyson meaning the phones right now. Coming up is Wally Funk, an, a different kind of pop star, an American aviator with over 19,000 flight hours, a member of the aforementioned Mercury 13 program. We're so excited to have Wally Funk on our show. Welcome to our airwaves. Colin, thank you very much for having me. How did you wind up as part of this group? You knew Jerry Cobb, the woman we were talking about before, right? Yes, Jerry and I were good friends because I went to Oklahoma State, and she called and said, hey, do you want to be an astronaut? And I said, yes. She said, so you get a hold of Loveless? And I did, and he said, be there on Monday. So (laughs) my parents drove me down there. I was too young, and they had to sign me in. So I took all the tests, all the three phases, and then I went on in my life, and I went to different organizations where I could get colleges and organizations where I could get more testing, and then I went to Russia three times to test with the cosmonauts. Wow. So um, people who've seen the movie The Right Stuff, uh, they see uh, the male uh, prospective astronauts going through these tests, and I think there's a moment where a lot of them are dropping out, and John Glenn is still going. But you outscored John Glenn on these tests, right? Yes, I did. Well, it was youth, and also I was only 113 pounds. And probably the test that uh, Loveless really liked the most was that I stayed in the tank with all your senses, all your everything, temperature, everything taken away from you for 10 hours and 13 cents and never moved. Holy moly. Yeah, that was called the dog dip test, right? Yes. Is that just, were you just a very, very calm person? How did you, I, I couldn't last an hour doing that. How did you stay in there <laughs> well, for 10 hours? I was brought up to be very particular of what I did. I was born in Taos, New Mexico, and my mother told me about the spirit of the Taos Mountain, and that spirit of the Taos Mountain is in me right now, and it has shown me a way of life to do things better, faster, and at 150% better than anybody else could do, and I have lived my life that way, and I am so happy. I have never had an interruption, and the way Martha tells it is great, but I am still going at it. I even, I was giving flight instructions this morning, and it was just beautiful being up in the sky. You were giving flight instructions this morning. Would it be rude of me to ask how old you are? 45. 45, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think your math checks out. You may have done well on the other test, but your, your math's a little shaky there, Wally. So when you have to explain to someone or, you know, when you're just in a, a picnic and having a conversation with someone and you tell them this story, how do you explain what, I mean, I don't know, it seems to me you'd be a great astronaut. I'd make you an astronaut, uh, you know, right away. So when you have to explain why you didn't get to do this, what do you tell people? 
Well, I, I actually I do almost one or two lectures still a month mm-hmm. somewhere in the United States. And I start out by saying what were the tests that I took, how did I do on them, and then I have pictures that show them how uh, everything went. And, uh, of course, Dr. Kilgore was uh, a wonderful doctor, and he... Oh, he saved all of my records. Unfortunately, the records were all destroyed when they made a new um, Loveless Clinic. But um, I have my records, and then the records where I've gone to other places to take all these tests. I have done everything there is to do in in the world of aviation, parachuting, air racing, ballooning, uh, bungees. Uh, I love it all, and I will do it all over again because I want to get up right now since I was uh, I was going to go with uh, NASA. I put in three applications, and they said, Wally, we want you. Sally Ride says, we want the girls to come because they took the test so wonderfully. And unfortunately, I didn't have an engineering degree, so I was not allowed. But I have gone on with other companies that have made rockets, but the only one that's going to go up is going to be Sir Richard Branson. So I've been with him six years, and I'm hoping that'll happen next year. Oh, that'll be great. And is there any chance you get to be on that rocket when it goes up? Absolutely. So what's the most challenging kind? I mean, you just said that you've been up in the sky under almost every circumstances in every kind of vehicle or conveyance uh, or craft that's imaginable. What's been the most challenging thing for you or the scariest? Have you ever been scared up there that you weren't going to make it back down to Earth? (laughs) No, uh, Colin, I have never been scared of anything in my life. And it's the way that my parents brought me up. If you get hurt, you lick your wounds and you go on. And I was, I've never been afraid. I've never had an accident. I've never had anything with an air that has bothered me in, in, in the air, on the ground, whatever. I'm a very happy, lucky kid, and I, I do my best. I run further, faster, and want to get up higher. And it was too bad that we couldn't go on, but I have never been unhappy or upset because we were never allowed. I said, there's going to be a time, always looking forward, giving it at 150% going on. Well, Wally Funk, we have to go, but I'll say it. You should have been an astronaut. Uh, thank you. I wish I were. <laughs> All right. I wish you were, too. Wally Funk, so great to talk to you. I feel braver and better and stronger than I did before I talked to Wally Funk. I also feel comparatively weaker and more cowardly, you know, next to her, but that's I'm used to that kind of thing. <laughs> 